Amen. We are in the midst of a sermon series on the life of Abraham, and this week we're up to Genesis 21, but if you have your Bible, I want to ask you to turn with me to Genesis 17, because we're going to do a little bit of review today. If you haven't been with us, this is your day. We're going to review the whole story, everything we've done up to this point, because there is some tension in the story that gets resolved in Genesis 21. There's some plays on words that I want you to see. My literature folks are here, and so we're going to look at those together. And uh, so if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis 17, and we'll soon be in Genesis 21. I'll read the first uh, first seven verses there. So if you would turn with me to Genesis 17, and we'll start with a little review. We first met Abraham back in Genesis chapter 11 when Abraham was 75 years old. And we learned his name at that point was Abram, which means exalted father. And so we kind of laughed and said, well, wow, that's great. Your name is exalted father. How many kids do you have? And the answer is zero. What a horrible name, exalted father, and you have no kids. Also in Genesis chapter 11, we're introduced to Abram's wife, Sarah, who at that time was 65 years old. And the text quickly tells us right away, Sarah was barren. And if we don't know what that means, the next sentence clarifies for us, she had no children. So you have this 75-year-old man named Exalted Father married to this 65-year-old woman, and they don't have children. Then in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram to leave the place where he is to go to a land that God will show him. And God says, if you go, I'm going to bless you, and you will become a great nation. You'll have lots of descendants, he says to this 75-year-old man with a 65-year-old wife. And through your descendants, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. And Abram believed him and went to this place that God showed him. And after he had been in the promised land for some time, Abraham begins to worry because he still doesn't have any kids. And we saw in Genesis chapter 15, Abram is saying to God, God, this Eliezer of Damascus, this this person who works in my household is going to work, is going to inherit, he's going to be my heir because I don't have a child. And God says, he takes Abraham outside. And he says, look up at the stars. Count them if you can. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. God assured Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And Abraham believes God, and it is credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham is believing God. And they have a covenant, they make a covenant together. He believes he's going to have descendants. And in Genesis 16, after 10 years of waiting, Abraham is now 85, Sarah is now 75. And finally in Genesis 16, Sarah just says, look, God hasn't given me a child. So I want you to take my handmaiden, Hagar, And I want you to have a child with her. It was a culturally accepted thing. And that day, folks often did this. And so she gives her handmaiden to Abraham. And Hagar does become pregnant and bears Abraham a son, Ishmael. So Abraham had an heir. And the tension seems to be resolved for a while. For 13 years, Hagar and Ishmael live with Abraham and Sarah. Now, there are other tensions that that causes, as you might imagine. And you can go back and listen to that sermon as we talked about that before. 
But it seems like at least this promise of an heir has been resolved until we get to Genesis 17. And then God appears to Abraham, who is now 99 years old. And Sarah is 89 years old. And God appears to Abraham when he's 99. He says, look, I'm changing your name from exalted father Abram to Abraham. And if you don't know Hebrew, that means father of many. <laughs> he's 99 years old. His wife's 89. He's got one kid, and we're going to call him father of many now. It's almost unfair, isn't it, that God would do this to Abraham and if you turn to Genesis 17, look with me in verse, beginning in verse 16, because God says not only are you going to be the father of many, but I'm going to give you a child through Sarah, who's 89 at this point. Abraham's 99 at this point. Look what God says to him in verse 16. God says, I will bless her, Sarah, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And I want you to look and see how Abraham responded in Genesis chapter 17, verse 17. Look how Abraham responds to what God is saying. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Abraham laughed. It's laughable that God would give a son to a 99-year-old man and an 89-year-old woman. If you continue in the text, Abraham laughed to himself and said, he said, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael, the son that he already had, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name... Isaac. And again, if you don't know your Hebrew, the name Isaac means he laughs. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's kind of funny. God tells Abraham he's going to do this, and Abraham laughs, and God says, okay, you think that's funny? Well, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him He Laughs. We'll see who gets the last laugh here, God says to Abraham. And God says, I will establish my covenant with him, with Isaac, as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. But listen, Abraham's not the only one who laughs at this story, right? If you were with us in Genesis 18, you will recall that these three visitors come to Abraham and Sarah. And we later find out one of them is the Lord with two angels. And remember what happened in Genesis 18. Beginning in verse 9, they said to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. Verse 10, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a son now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Again, we see who gets the last laugh as we come to Genesis chapter 21. The laughter of disbelief that we see in Abraham. 
this laughter that we talked about in Genesis 18, this laughter of anger or bitterness or cynicism and disbelief that we see in Sarah. We see God at work now in Genesis 21. It's been 25 years since God first spoke to Abraham and Sarah. They are 100 years old and 90 years old at this point in time. Genesis 21, verses 1 through 7. Hear now God's word. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. He laughed, right? Now watch this in the text. Because the author could just say son and leave it at that. And every time he kind of pokes, he says his son Isaac. He identifies him. Watch in the text. Verse 4. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made Isaac for me. He's made laughter for me. And everyone who hears will Isaac will laugh over me or with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would use your word now to be at work in our hearts to show us your faithfulness to your promises, that we might be a trusting people, and that we might be a rejoicing, a laughing people. Please come and do that now, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher, for it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I wonder what you think when you hear stories like this from the Bible. An amazing story, a great story. We see this tension resolved here as Abraham and Sarah miraculously have a child in their, own, in their old age. I wonder how you respond to that. Most of the time as I talk to people, they will say to a preacher something like, well, I think that's great that God did great things like that for Abraham and Sarah, that he did a lot of things like that, you know, back in Bible times. And if I get closer to people and they begin to trust me, a lot of times people are honest and say, yeah, that's great that God did stuff like that back then. But I wish God would do stuff like that for me now, at this time, in these days, in the things that I face. And if we're very honest, sometimes when God does not do the things we want him to do, we get down. And we get bitter. And we get cynical. Sometimes we get angry. And we say, God hasn't come through for me. He hasn't done the things that I want him to do. So I'm done with God. I give up on him. He hasn't been there for me, so I don't see any reason why I need to be there for him. Well, I want you to know one of the main takeaways from this overarching story in the scripture, one of the main takeaways for us is that because God is faithful to his promises, we should be a trusting people. And we should be a rejoicing people, a people who laugh, who celebrate what God has done. 
And I want to look at those two things with you. We should be a trusting people. We should be a rejoicing people. I want to look at those two things with you. But as we look at the argument we should be a trusting people, that begs the question, doesn't it? We should be a trusting people, yes, but what about when God doesn't do what I want him to do? What about when he doesn't come through for me like he did Abraham and Sarah, like I see him do in Bible times? What about when we ask for something fervently and God says no and doesn't give it to us? What do we do then? How do we learn to trust him in that situation when God's not doing what we think God ought to do? Let me give you three thoughts in response to that question. What about when God doesn't do what we want him to do? Number one, maybe it's not God's will. Maybe it's not God's will to do what you want. Maybe it's just your will. Listen, the lesson from the text is God is faithful to his promises. Okay? And God is faithful to his promises. If God promises something, even if it looks impossible to do, you can take it to the bank because God is faithful to his promises. But listen, God never said that he would do just whatever anybody decided that they wanted God to do. That is not what he has ever said. That's not what his word says. That's not what it teaches. And so it's important that we know what the promises of God are so that we can know what he, we can trust him for. God had promised a child to Abraham and Sarah, and God kept his promise. And God didn't do everything that he was asked to do. We just saw in Genesis 17 where, God, where Abraham goes to God and says, Oh, that Ishmael would be the son of the promise. Oh, that you would bless him, that he would find favor before you. And God said, No. Yes, he still blesses Ishmael, but that Isaac will be the son of the promise. So God doesn't do just whatever anyone decides they want to ask him to do, but God is faithful to his promises. We're never promised perfect health. We're never promised material blessings in whatever amount we would like to have them and then success in whatever way we want to define it. What we can trust in are the promises of God. So when it comes to those things, we need to know what God's word says so that we can know what we can trust God for, what he's going to be faithful to do. So let's just take some of those material blessings, right? I can't guarantee you that God's going to give you whatever you want and whatever amount you want and success, however you define the term. What I can guarantee you is that my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus in glory. I can guarantee you that. And that's because God promises that. Philippians 4 and verse 19, that's exactly what he says here. My God will supply all your needs according to his, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 19. Jesus says something very similar in Matthew 6. Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat. And what you're going to drink, that your heavenly father knows that you need these things. He knows what your needs are before you even ask. Jesus says, who by worrying can add a single hour to his life? But in Matthew 6 and verse 33, Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you as well. That's a promise that we can bank on. 
That's what God tells us about material things in his word. What about health? There are people today who will tell you, maybe preachers on TV, maybe preachers you listen to that will say, it's not God's will that anybody would be sick, so you just need to pray and believe and God will heal you or heal your loved one. Listen, that is not what the scripture says. Folks say it's not God's will that anybody would be, because Jesus healed a bunch of people. Listen, Jesus didn't heal everybody he came into contact with. He healed some people. But there are times he said, look, our work is done here. And he goes on to the next town, and there are people waiting to be healed. And Jesus didn't heal everybody that was there. And think about this. Every single person Jesus did heal at some point later in their life, got sick again and then died. We don't have any of those people around with us today. We're not guaranteed perfect health. It's not a guarantee in the scripture. Now, should we even pray for that or ask for that? Of course we should. James chapter 5 says, is it if you sick, you should pray. You should have the elders pray for them, and we do that here. We have opportunities for you to come and to make your prayer request known so that the elders can pray for those things for you. We should pray for them. And sometimes God does heal people. Sometimes he doesn't. Well, what are the promises of God? What are the guarantees? What, do I, what can I bank on? Well, you can bank on this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, Paul says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. Amen. That's a promise that our bodies outwardly are wasting away. Some of you know that. You feel that, right? You don't have to be convinced of that. But to hear the promise, inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. Thank you, Lord. That's what we can count on. That's what, we, that's what God guarantees to his people. What about the trials or the difficulties we face? Romans 8 is a place that I would recommend that you go and mark up so that you can go in difficult times. It begins in verse 1 by saying, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8 and verse 1. And you go down to Romans 8 and verse 18, and as you face difficult things, the scripture assures us that these present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. So what we face now is not our best life now. What we have to look forward to is our best life in the future. When either we go to be with the Lord or he comes back and makes all things right. Or Romans 8, 28, we're told, you can read there, that for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, he works all things for our good. That even the bad things that you face, there's a day coming that's going to get better, but even in this moment, God is using those things for your good in your life to make you look more like Jesus. That's a promise you can be assured of. Or when you get down to, to Romans 8, 38 and 39 were promised that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There's nothing, not famine, not war, not the sword, not angels, not demons, that there's nothing that can separate us from God's love. Those are the things that we can build our lives on. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. The best is yet to come. God's using even the bad things now for your good, and nothing will ever separate you from his love. Well, what if what I desperately want is not God's will? 
What if that's where I am today? Well, let me give you a couple of thoughts about that. First, maybe God will change your will. Maybe he will change your heart. I would tell you to keep seeking him, keep wrestling with him. Abraham and Sarah didn't see the answer to his promise for 25 years. I would urge you not to, draw, not to leave God and pull away, but to press in more closely. What if what I want is not God's will? Well, I want you to realize this, secondly, that just because God does not do what you want him to do does not mean that God doesn't love you. Do you hear me? Just because God doesn't do what you want him to do does not mean that God does not love you, that he's unloving. Listen, any parent who really loves their kids will tell you it is not the right thing to do to just give your kids everything they want. No parent who really loves their children would do that. Because we become spoiled, because we become presumptuous, because some things kids want they don't actually need. So certainly our Heavenly Father, when he says no, it's not because he doesn't love us. On the contrary, it's because he does. Read Romans chapter 1. God just giving people over to whatever they want is a curse. It is not a blessing. What makes, which makes you wonder about some of this uh, social media algorithms that keeps giving you more of whatever you want. Makes you think. But finally, if what I want is not God's will, the last thing I would say is this. We've got to trust that God's will is better than ours. He knows more than what we know. He knows what is best for us better than we know for ourselves. Romans 12 and verse 2 describes it as his good and pleasing and perfect will. Oh, beloved, how can the imperfect find fault with the perfect so when God doesn't do what you want him to do, maybe it's not his will. But number two, maybe it's not his way. Maybe it's not the way God is going to do what it is that you ultimately want done. Think about that. God had promised a son to Abraham and Sarah, and they waited really patiently for ten whole years. And God didn't act in that time. So Abraham and Sarah decide that they're going to do it their way. They're going to do a way that was acceptable in the culture, a way that the culture said, yes, this is a way you can have a child. It's been 10 years. And, and so they have a child through this handmaiden. Well, listen, if Abraham and Sarah could have produced this child on their own, would Isaac's birth be as glorious as it is? No, not at all. In fact, Sarah says as much in, in verse 7 in, in chapter 21 where she says, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? The answer is nobody. Yet I have borne him a son and his own. Can you, a 90-year-old woman nursing a baby? It's crazy. To God be the glory, great things he has done. You see, the fact that it was all of God and couldn't possibly be manufactured by us, saves the glory for God alone. And sometimes when we try to do the things that we know God wants done, 
We try in our own way, in our own strength, in our own intellect, through our own relational networks, through our using our own money, our own methods, our own personalities. And when we rely on our own strength and all of those things, we're operating out of our flesh instead of walking by the Spirit. It's important that we begin to ask, what is the role of the Holy Spirit in whatever it is that I'm doing? Should I prepare to preach? Absolutely. I want to take this time very seriously. But unless the Holy Spirit comes and works, I don't understand the words written on the page. And even if what, everything I say is beautiful and flawless, if he doesn't open your ears and your heart, you can't hear it. What's God's will for us? How, what is the Holy Spirit's role in discipleship and making disciples? What's the Holy Spirit's role in outreach? We should be nice to people. But man, we got to depend on the Spirit to change people's hearts. What's the Spirit's role in missions? What's the Spirit's role in our mercy ministry? What's the Spirit's role in our jobs, in our families, in our marriages, in our parenting? You know, it's hard to let God do things His way. Because we have to surrender control to Him. But when we do it our way, we're in our flesh, and we're not walking by the Spirit. Now, you may think to yourself, well, he's on a tangent now. He's chasing a rap. There's nothing about the flesh and the Spirit here in Genesis 21. And you're right, that's not what it says here. But read Galatians chapter 4. <laughs> this is the exact application the Apostle Paul makes. In Galatians chapter 4, he looks at this story and says that, that Hagar and Ishmael are the way of human effort. They're the way of the flesh. And that Sarah and Isaac are the way of trusting God to do it his way. That's an example of walking by the Spirit. And Galatians asks us, are we going to rely on God to accomplish his purposes in his way? Or are we going to manufacture results? Are we going to rely on human effort? Are we going to do what we think is best? Listen, God's promises will reach their fulfillment. He will keep his promises. But it's through his work and in his way, not through our schemes or our efforts or in our own flesh, not what our culture tells us is the expedient thing to do. The bottom line is this, whatever good of lasting value that happens comes from God. It is God who makes the barren fruitful. Jesus said the same thing in John 15 and verse 5 where he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. We must remain connected to our Savior. The only way we have of doing anything lasting or of eternal value is if God does it his way. So we must rely upon God to accomplish his will in his way. But there's a third thought. Maybe it's not God's will. Maybe you're trying to do it in a way other than God's way. Maybe it's not his time. That jumps out of this story, doesn't it? They had waited 10 years, but it was going to be 25 years from age 75 to 100 before God fulfills his promise. And it was not until after 25 years of waiting after all human scheming has come to an end, that God acted. 
one of the things we have to take away from this story is that God is just not in a really big hurry to fulfill his promises. God's timing is very seldom our timing. And God's always on time. But he's not in a hurry. And one of the hardest things we do as Christians is to wait on the Lord. What is it you're waiting on the Lord to do today? Maybe some of you are, are looking forward to go to college. You're taking your standardized test. You're trying to keep your get, And you're waiting to hear back if you're going to get into school. You're waiting to hear if you'll get in. Some of you are in school and you're just waiting on the Lord to see if you're going to get out of school, right? You're hoping that you're going to get out after these many years. Some of you may be single and you're waiting on the Lord to provide you with a spouse and he's just not in a hurry. So maybe some of you are married and you're still waiting on the Lord to give you the spouse that you thought you had married. He's just not changing them fast enough. Maybe you're waiting to have kids and the Lord hasn't blessed you. Maybe you're waiting on your kids to be those kids you had in your mind that you were going to have when you dreamed of having kids. Maybe you're waiting to become the parent that you always said you were going to be before you had kids. We wait on a lot of things, don't we? And it is hard to wait. It's difficult. We pray. The answer's delayed. We fume and we fret and we worry. We manipulate the situation and try to help God out to get to the answer that we want. And we're not trusting God. We doubt his ability or we doubt his ways, his methods, or we doubt his timing. We must trust God and wait on him. Because God has proven himself to be faithful to his promises. We should be a trusting people. But the text also shows us we should be a rejoicing people. Now this is really important. If I've lost you, come back. We're on a different topic now, right? We're called here to be a rejoicing people. You know, it's unfortunate to me that if you ask folks, who are the most rejoicing people? You know, God's not usually at the top of the list. People in church, not usually on the top of the list, right? That's unfortunate that most folks, when they think about God or the church, they don't think about laughter. When God clearly has a sense of humor and he has this play on words on laughter here, and Abraham and Sarah both laugh. It's this laughter of disbelief. It's this laughter of bitterness and cynicism. But God says you will name him Isaac, which means he laughs. And God gets the last laugh as he keeps his promise. And as God turns the laughter of disbelief and of cynicism and bitterness, God turns that laugh into the laughter of rejoicing in Genesis chapter 21. And we're invited to enter into that rejoicing. What does she say in verse 6? Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. We're invited into this rejoicing. We're invited into this laughter of God. Oh, we should be a rejoicing people. But we're really not known that way. 
We're not known as people who laugh. I suppose it's because when we gather, we sort of act like Jesus is dead, right? Like this is a funeral. I mean, this is the, today's the first time in this church I've seen people actually run laps. That was the kids earlier with the palm branch. You thought you'd never see that here, right? We saw it today. Listen, don't come in here next week on Easter Sunday acting like Jesus died. I understand Jesus died for our sins, but you do know he rose from the dead, right? That's the whole point of Easter, is that he rose triumphant over death and sin. It gives us a promise and assurance that God will make all things right. And yes, I understand that there's a place for mourning and weeping. There is a, a category for lament. We should do that as the people of God. But Ecclesiastes 3 assures us that there is a time to weep, but there is also a time to laugh. That there is a time to mourn, but there's also a time to dance. Jesus in John 8, down around verse 56, says, Abraham saw my day, saw Jesus' day, and rejoiced. And we've seen Jesus' day much more clearly than Abraham ever did, which means we should rejoice even more. I wonder why we're not a rejoicing people. Galatians 3, I think, has something to say about that. Paul writes to the Galatian church, what has happened to all your joy? You began in the Spirit. Are you now trying to accomplish things in human effort? Isn't that what we're doing? Isn't that how we lost our joy? We try to make things happen in our time, in our own way, with our own methods, with our own resources, in our own timing, and it's not working, and we're exhausted and we're angry that it hasn't worked out the way we had planned for it to, and we become bitter and cynical, and we just want to quit on God. That's where this whole sermon started, right? That happens to us. That's why we're not a rejoicing people. You see, follow me, we're not a rejoicing people because we're not a trusting people. We don't rejoice in God because we don't trust God. We oftentimes don't believe that he has our best in mind. We don't really believe God's way is better than our way. We don't really believe God's timing is better than our timing. And when we don't get what we want in the way that we want it, when we want it, we get angry. And we're not rejoicing. We're not a rejoicing people because we're not a trusting people. Oh, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. What do we do? What if we see it? What if you say, Scott, yeah, I see that. I, I want to be a rejoicing person, but I'm having trouble trusting. How can I do that? Give me the enablement. Help me to see. Help me, help me deal with my doubt. And so I'll close with this. Yes, if that's where you are, you see that this is true of you. What do we do if we still have those moments that we doubt and we believe ugly things about God? Here's what I would call you to do. Look to the grace of God. Do you see it here in the text? <laughs> Abraham and Sarah doubted, and God still kept his promises. Abraham and Sarah laughed at God's plan, and God was still faithful to his promises. 
Even in our doubt, God is faithful to his promises. Even when they tried to take things into their own hands to make God's promises come true, God was faithful to them. Despite their disbelief, despite their bitterness and cynicism, despite their self-reliance. And God, in his grace, and in his mercy, and in his faithfulness, extends that same grace to you and to me. God is faithful to his promises. We may waver, but God will not waver. We may be unfaithful, but God remains faithful. We may laugh in disbelief, but God turns the laughter of disbelief into the laughter of rejoicing. God's faithful to his promises. And when our faith is in him and not in ourselves, then we're a trusting and a rejoicing people. Let's pray and ask him to help us to trust him more. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come now and apply this word to our hearts, that you would help us to see the ways that we don't trust you as we should. That as we trust you more and see that you do much more than we deserve, that we would become a rejoicing people, rejoicing in what you have for us. We thank you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.